Romans chapter two, beginning in verse one, it says, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge for when it in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who, by patient continuance and doing good, seek for glory, honor and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. In Romans chapter two, Paul describes three kinds of people, moral people in verses one through eleven, pagan people in verses twelve through sixteen. But at the end of this chapter, he's also going to talk about religious people and he brings them up right away and literally expands from verse one to verses seventeen through twenty nine. The moral person claims that they should be acquitted of the charges of sin on the grounds that they're better than the pagans. And Paul refutes the plea by reminding them that they're guilty of the same sins, only in a more refined way. The pagan enters a plea of innocence on the grounds of ignorance. And Paul refutes the plea by calling two witnesses to the cosmic stand, conscience and creation or nature, which he's talked about in verses 19 and 20 in chapter one. And also again in verses 14, 15 and 16 here, the religious person enters a plea of acquittal and exoneration on the grounds that they know the law and that they teach the law. They're the stewards of the law 
And Paul refutes the plea by arguing, but wait a minute, you don't practice what you preach. And so, sin takes many forms. People will often ask, as they look at chapter 1 and they see the laundry list from verses 21 all the way through verse 32, they say, well, but what's the worst? What's the worst of the worst of the worst sin? Well, what sin did Jesus attack more directly and more severely than any other sin? Oddly enough, it's the sin most practiced. And most justified. If we were to entertain even for a moment, if we were to just conduct ourselves with a little self-examination and self-disclosure, we would come to the right answer because it's the sin of self-righteousness. It goes by a lot of different names. Some people call it arrogance. Some people call it conceit. Some people call it hypocrisy. Some people call it judgmentalism, which is the one that I get accused of the most, but often takes the generic malady of pride And the problem, of course, is guilt because we embrace arrogance and conceit and hypocrisy and judgmentalism and pride. And I think that most people are willing to admit they're sinners. But what is really difficult is to get people to admit that their sin disqualifies them from heaven. Except, of course, if you're a believer, because it's not sin that disqualifies you from heaven. Jesus qualifies you from heaven. And when you embrace Jesus and you embrace grace and you embrace his love and his generosity and his goodness, when you come to Christ and you actually begin to believe that you are identified with Christ and Christ is identified with you and his grace and his mercy has been made manifest in your life, you begin to understand something that God loves you and Jesus loves you and he forgives you in spite of your sin and forgives your sin and then gives you grace in order to embrace friendship and fellowship with him. But what is problematic is for the person who rejects Christ and rejects grace because most people think that God grades on a curve. They begin to think, well, since no one is perfect and they can't bring themselves to believe in a God of love, that he would condemn so many people to hell that God must judge raunchy sinners different from respectable sinners. And in the grand scheme of things, since everyone's a sinner and there's raunchy sinners and there's respectable sinners, we find ourselves moving into the category of respectable sinner. And so, who do we put in the respectable sinner category? Religious people. Beautiful people. Intelligent people. Paul knows that religious people will argue that they're better than others and therefore they don't really need a savior. And others will point to their prosperity or their gifts or their talents and determine that a God of love would never condemn them. And Paul points out that God's judgment will not be on the basis of human opinion or human evaluation, even if it's your opinion and it's a self-evaluation, but according to truth. 
God doesn't grade based on the majority of opinion or self-evaluation, but the truth that's been revealed by God and declared by God in the person of Jesus Christ. And so religious people can't fool God. And so we look at verse one, look what it says. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things. I have a note in my Bible and the note, of course, is that the judging here is moral in nature. That is, it's the ability to discern between right and wrong. The moralists of verse one aren't condemned by God for moral judgment, but because of their sin. When he uses the word, therefore, you are inexcusable, the word translated inexcusable is a or Anna Apologetos apology or apologetics. That's a word that maybe some of you are familiar with. It means to make a defense. And when you put Anna Apologetos, it, it is a word that was actually a legal word. It was a judicial term that was used in the ancient world to describe a person who was without defense. We have a similar plea in our own culture. If you've ever gone before a judge, you usually get to to choose between guilty or not guilty. But in the ancient world, there was another plea that you could enter into, and it was no contest. And this is that. That's what he's saying. Inexcusable here means without defense. Without excuse. And so Paul's first blast is directed towards the moralist or the religious people or respectable sinners that he's going to talk about in verse 17. For in it, the righteous. Well, actually, in in chapter two, verse 17, indeed, you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God. He's speaking to the person who says, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, you must not be talking about me. I'm religious. I read the Bible in the original language. I go to church and and I give alms to the poor. Remember what Jesus said in in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter seven. He says, do not judge lest you be judged for in the way you judge, you will be judged any by the standard of measure. It will be measured to you. In other words, Jesus warns everyone. To avoid hypocritical judgment and unjust judgment and incomplete judgment. And by the way, here judge means to render a verdict or pass an unfavorable criticism about someone else. It includes the idea of making a rash and unfair and inappropriate judgment of a person without knowing or caring about the facts. Clearly, we are to exercise discernment. So people will 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 read chapter two or they'll read Matthew chapter seven and they'll say, don't judge. But judge doesn't mean never judge anything under any circumstance because we're required to judge good from evil. We're required to judge right from wrong. We're we're required to judge sin in the church. But here's what we are not required to do. We are not to required to embrace hypocritical judgments and unjust judgments. So does the Bible say. 
Never exercise discernment? No. Does the Bible say to avoid unjust and hypocritical judgments? Of course. And so Paul will point that out in verse 2. He says, but we know that the judgment of God, which is never hypocritical, which is never unjust, which is always on the basis of truth. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. What things? Hypocritical, unjust judgments, unfair judgments. Paul condemns those who pass judgment on others and yet who are willing to embrace and commit the very sins that they're accusing other people of of doing and the Jewish people would be judged according to the truth and religious people would be judged according to the truth. There are millions, millions, millions of moral people who think that they're going to get by because they're moral people. They're good people. They're decent people. They're the kind of people that you'd love to have in your organization. They're the kind of people that you love to be your neighbors. The Jewish people, by and large, felt certain that God would have to forgive them simply on the basis of the fact that they were Jewish people. Hence the term chosen people. Some Jewish teachers took this even one step further. They believed everyone would be judged except the Jewish people. There was a common Jewish tradition that claimed Abraham positioned himself at the gates of hell going Jewish or non-Jewish? He would position himself at the gates of hell. He claimed there was a Jewish tradition that Abraham positioned himself at the gates of hell to keep all Jews out regardless of their deeds. As a matter of fact, there was something on eBay where a Jewish man auctioned off his place in heaven on eBay. See, you're laughing, but it... You wouldn't have laughed if you got, it's $10,000, it's $20,000. Hey, wait a minute. This auction has gone all the way up to $99,000 until the eBay administrator pulled the ad. Which is worse, that this guy is selling his alleged place in heaven or that there are people actually bidding for it? As a matter of fact, in one ancient text, it says Trifo, the Jew, is alleged to have said, quote, they who are the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom, unquote. And so many Jews believed that they were immune from God's wrath. They were exonerated from God's judgment simply on the grounds that they were Jews. But the Jews aren't alone. The same could be said of many people who are evangelical Christians. Many people who are Americans, who are Catholics, or, or who are Protestants. It doesn't really matter what kind of label, what kind of moral label or religious label some people believe God accepts me on the basis that I'm, well, better than you. 
See, they don't say it out loud because they would get the same response that I just got from you. <laughs> what a hypocrite. What a liar. Perhaps some of the Messianic Jews reading Paul's opening indictment against the sins of the sensual Romans and Greek libertines would have shouted, You go ahead and preach it, Rabbi! Yes, let's call down the fire of heaven on these Gentiles who are going to perish in the depths of their own iniquity. And then all of a sudden he talks this kind of talk. The self-righteous Jew, as well as the self-righteous make-believer, wouldn't have dreamed that he or she apart from the perfect work of Jesus Christ, would face the same awful judgment. And this becomes part of the point that Paul is talking about. He's not teaching, he is not preaching a salvation of works apart from God's grace and apart from God's mercy and apart from the person of Jesus Christ. I don't know how to say this except bluntly and repeatedly. You can't go to heaven apart from Christ. You can't go to heaven apart from the grace of God and the mercy of God and the generosity of God. It is the Lord God and the person of Jesus Christ, who becomes the satisfying solution to the problem of sin. And so what is it about self-righteousness that deludes the religious moralist? What is it about self-righteousness that makes us blind to our sin? Why are the self-righteous, why are the religious people The good people condemned, according to Paul, it's because they're guilty of the same sins that they're accusing their neighbors of. Look what it says. They practice or do the same thing as their unbelieving pagan neighbors. And God sees their sin and condemns their sin. Lying looks awful except when we do it. And theft looks terrible except when we do it. And by the way, we glean some excellent insight onto the psychology of religion from this passage of Scripture. But we can also see something else if we dare to look, if we remove the covers and we decide just for a moment that we're going to look into our own hearts. Because the root and fruit of these sins are common to religious people. And the first insight is that religious people don't always understand the nature and extent of sin in the heart and in the mind. We can sometimes delude ourselves into thinking because we've never really killed anyone, because we've never really committed adultery, because we've never really stolen money, that we are beyond judgment and we fail to remind ourselves that sins committed in the head and the heart bring the same judgment from God. Even though there isn't always the same consequences, God sees the acts of the mind and the heart and God isn't deceived by our little mind games of or rationalizations or justifications. And you know what a rationalization is. It's the plausible but untrue excuse why you had to lie in that circumstance, why you had to take advantage in that circumstance, why you had to let it go in that circumstance. Other people commit adultery. We have a fling or an affair. Or we have an emotional attachment. Other people lie and cheat. We exaggerate or stretch the truth or speak of little white lies. Other people betray. But we protect our boundaries and we preserve our rights and dignities. Other people steal. 
but we simply appropriate. Other people are prejudiced. We have convictions. And the self-righteous have built in blindness, and there's a reason why. It's to protect our own faults. Most of us are familiar with the sad, sad story of David and Bathsheba. And you'll remember how Bathsheba's husband was murdered. And you'll remember that Nathan the prophet told the king the story of a rich man and a poor man's sheep. And the poor man loved his sheep and raised it in his own home and fed it. And his children had an affection for it. And he slaughtered the rich man came over, even though he had an abundance of sheep, and he slaughtered it in order to feed his guests. And David was disgusted and he was horrified. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 5 through 7, it says that David burned with anger against the man and said, Said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. And this is what the Lord says. The God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Oddly enough, God in his grace and in his mercy and his generosity doesn't even bring the same verdict that David brings on the man in his story. But even in that particular instance, instead of getting what he deserves, he still extended grace and mercy. Have you ever prayed this prayer? Lord, thank you that you haven't dealt with me according to my sin, nor rewarded me according to my iniquity. That's a good prayer. Each and every one of us can pray that prayer. Thank you. Thank you that I'm not getting what I deserve. Thank you that Jesus Christ in his love and in his mercy has lavished upon me an amazing amount of grace. How amazing is it? How amazing is it? Yesterday I was at the Rockies game and Mercy Me had a concert afterwards and the lead singer of of Mercy Me made the startling statement that God's grace is sufficient even for your wickedness and your disappointment and your failure. Hey, but Lord, I've been wicked. I've done disappointing things and I failed. Is there is there grace sufficient even for that? You see, the self-righteous religious person is not only blind, but morally impaired. Kent Hughes writes, quote, hell will be full of judgmental goody goody people. Unfortunately, such thinking isn't confined to the damned. It's also the favorite indoor sport of many Christians. It's the sin with which I'm constantly assailed and to which I often personally succumb. However, I am never more miserable than when I'm judging another person, unquote. Isn't that interesting? And is it also true in your life that you're never more miserable 
when you have to come to the sad, sad verdict of the person sitting next to you or the person sitting behind you or the person preaching in front of you. Few things are more damaging and destructive to the spread of the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ than graceless Christians. Chuck Swindoll has rightly said, if preaching grace makes you feel uncomfortable, then the truth is I'm probably doing something right. But grace shouldn't make you feel Uncomfortable grace should fill your heart with the knowledge that there is a good and a gracious God who has given you everything. The self-righteous religious people think that they'll escape judgment. Because they're on the right side of God's moral argument. God, I hated homosexuals. God, I hated abortion and those who practice it. God, I held up a sign that said, God hates and you can fill in the blank. God, you condemn unrighteousness and so do I. Lord, look how terrible these people are. Thank God I'm not like them. But God isn't swayed or persuaded by the accusations of the self-righteous. It doesn't convince him. And so in verse 3 it says, And do you think, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? And there's part of the tact. You're for marriage. And you're against divorce. And then you got a divorce. You're against pornography and immoral sexual behavior. And then you practice it. You're against lying, but then you're hard-pressed to find the truth in almost any conversation. Do you think that by simply acknowledging that there are moral boundaries and then transgressing those boundaries that you would escape judgment? No wonder Paul writes in verse 4, or do you despise, do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God has led you to repentance? I want you to just note that really quick. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Because it's the riches of his goodness and it's the riches of his forbearance and it's the riches of his long suffering and it's the riches of his goodness that has brought each and every one of us to a place where we could say, wow, I was wrong about sin and I was wrong about Jesus and I was wrong about grace. I am a sinner in need of grace and Jesus is the satisfying solution. Don't you understand that if it wasn't for God's grace and mercy, each and every one of us would be in the hopeless position of being lost. One of the last characteristics of religious people is listed in this passage. God has been good and kind and tolerant and patient with me. Paul argues it makes good sense then that we can be good and kind and tolerant and patient with the people who are close to us and the people who are far away. Some people would say, 
Well, the fact that God has been good and the fact that God has been kind and the fact that God has been tolerant and the, the fact that God has been patient, this proves that God loves me and accepts me apart from Christ and apart from the gospel of grace. And nothing could be further from the truth. In other words, well, God hasn't killed me yet. Of course, that's because he's, he's being so patient with you. Well, I haven't come to Christ and I'm not dead yet. I know. Think about the glorious patience and kindness and goodness that God has extended to you. Paul says that God's kindness isn't permission for you to continue in sin, but rather grace-filled extension and opportunity to turn from sin. That's his argument. In a sense, do you know what Paul is saying? How could you have misinterpreted God's goodness? How could you have misinterpreted his kindness? How could you have misinterpreted his patience? How could you not see that God's kindness is yet another opportunity for you to turn from your sin? God can use awful circumstances and God can use tragic circumstances for us to change our mind and the direction of our lives But we rarely take advantage of just the normal circumstances of life, of simply getting up every morning and wondering, does this mean that I have the opportunity to go in a different direction? Sometimes God calls us in the sunshine and sometimes God calls us in the rain. But whatever else Paul is arguing, it's that God isn't fooled by religious people. God isn't fooled by respectable sinners, despite sometimes despising. And by the way, when it says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness? That word despise is actually an interesting word in the original language. It means to think down or look down. It's the mental act or it is the physical act of dismissing someone or something. And so here, the dismissal is the riches of his goodness and the riches of his forbearance and the riches of his long suffering. By the way, the word translated forbearance means hold back. When he says, or do you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance? The idea is, do you despise the fact that God has held back judgment as a sign that everything is going good? That's part of the point. It was actually, again, another legal term in the jurisprudence of the first century. Hold back, forbearance here was also a word that was used to describe a delay. In our culture and society, we have a term, we call it a stay of execution. You've all seen movies where the condemned criminal is getting ready to be executed and they focus on the phone at the place of execution and they're wondering if the governor is going to call. And all of a sudden the phone rings and the governor says, hold off on the execution. And there's this sigh of relief for the person who's being executed and there's sobs from the victims as they wonder when justice is going to be embraced. That's this word here. 
It's a stay of execution. But judgment is inevitable. Unless the terms of repentance and the terms of obedience are enacted. So he speaks to religious people, but then look again, he speaks at the beautiful people, that the beautiful people can't fool God. Look what it says in verse five. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation for the righteous judgment of God. Here's Paul. Paul's point. Why do people persist in self-righteous judgment? Paul gives four motives for hypocrisy right here. Number one, stubbornness. It's with your hardness and your impenitent heart. Number two, an unrepentant heart. Number three, selfish ambition. And number four, disobedient towards the truth. That's in verse eight. And so he's giving four motives for hypocrisy because people are stubborn, because they're unrepentant, because they're filled with selfish ambition, because they're disobedient to the truth. And I need you to understand something. The context here is a reference to non-Christians. Well, does that mean that Christians are never guilty of stubbornness or an unrepentant heart or selfish ambition or disobedience to the truth? Again, we need to be honest with the text and context. Paul is here speaking about the unbeliever. But I feel compelled to at least remind myself. That this could be a problem. Look what it says in verse six, who will render to each one according to his deeds. In other words, in spite of the stubbornness and an unrepentant heart and selfish ambition and disobedience to the truth, in the end, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Verse seven, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality. Well, does this mean eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor and immortality in the sense that it's apart from the gospel of Christ or apart from the gospel of grace or apart from Jesus? No, that's not what Paul is talking about. But but this is the adversative. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but only unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek that glory, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And I want to draw your attention to verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. The last sentence in this section would be an absolute shock for the religious reader, for the first century Jewish reader. For there is no partiality with God. What do you mean? God doesn't show favoritism. What do you mean? God is absolutely impartial. Well, that can't be because my whole life I've been taught that Jews are better than Gentiles. Does that make it true? No. Whites are better than blacks. No. Girls are better than boys. Okay, you can say yes. Okay, I, I, I'll concede that one. I'll just throw you that one. 
Thank you for saying that. But somehow I just live my life as if it's true. How can God be absolutely impartial? The words no partiality comes from one Greek word, pro, so, polempsia, the root word prosopon. It means face. The verb lambano means to receive. It was an ancient word in the Greek language which meant to receive face. It was an oriental expression. When you received face, you showed favor or preference. And so when you revealed your face, you revealed favor. You revealed preference. And so here... It means for there is no partiality with God in the sense that God doesn't put his face forward or against people on any other basis other than what he deems to be right and correct. It appears in Romans chapter two here, verse 11, Ephesians chapter six, verse nine, Colossians chapter three, verse 25, James chapter two, verse one. In all four places in the Bible, it's translated respect. Of persons. For there is no partiality with God. There is no respect of persons. Your beautiful face. Your adorable face. Your lovely face. Can't save you. Unless of course you're my granddaughter. And then you see that beautiful face and. All of a sudden, whatever sins or transgressions seems to disappear. But here's what Paul is basically saying, that your beautiful face, your adorable face, your lovely face can't save you. What is he saying? Beautiful people, famous people, favored people. Are they used to preferential treatment? They are. Don't you know who I am? Don't you understand that I'm one of the beautiful people? Beautiful people, famous people, favored people are used to preferential treatment. I wouldn't know. There's a reason why I'm on the radio. This is the this is the reason. There are some people who might imagine that there's something about my face. There's something about my experiences. There's something about my gifts, my talents, my abilities that will make me the exception to the rule. Because I've made a contribution to humanity, because I've invented some great device, because I've made some amazing contribution in politics or art or science or athletics, because I've built a great building Uh, Because of my talent or treasure, I should be accepted by God apart from Jesus and apart from the gospel in spite of my sin. But Paul says in verse six, no, who will render to each one according to his deeds? God will judge you by what you do. And please don't make the mistake of thinking this means that you can be saved from your sin. By your deeds. Believers will have to give an account to God for their deeds. 
Non-believers will be judged on the basis of what they've actually done. But the standard is the same for everyone. No one will be able to say to God, my father was a pastor or my mother led worship or my my parents built this church. Those who grew up in a Christian home and those who grew up without the benefit of a Christian home. Guess what? They're going to be judged by exactly the same standard. And in a very real sense, people will are making deposits, Paul is pointing out, into two heavenly Bank accounts, you have two different accounts. One account is marked wrath and the other account we might say is marked eternal life. We might even use the term Paul uses in verse five. One marked wrath, one marked revelation. Jesus is the only one who can make a deposit into the account marked revelation or eternal life. You make your own deposits in your wrath IRA. <laughs> Jesus wipes out your wrath account by withdrawing all of your deposits and transferring it into his account. This is why the gospel's called such good news. Because even at an early age, I had quite an extensive bank account. But not only does Jesus take all of your deposits out of your wrath IRA. He then puts enough into your revelation account. To make sure that you have sufficient assets throughout all of eternity. Have you ever woken up one morning wondering if you're going to have enough to pay the rent or put food on the table or to take care of your children or grandchildren? Sometimes we wonder whether or not we have enough spiritual currency to last throughout this life and the next life. Paul writes, in Christ, that's exactly what you have. You're complete in him now, not later. And then he says intelligent people can't fool God. In this section, in verses 12 through 16, God judges with perfect justice and with faultless discrimination. God judges the deeds, but he also judges the motives because only Jesus can judge the secrets of men's hearts according to his gospel. So what does it mean that God's judgment is discriminating? Well, it means that God takes into account a person's advantages, a person's attitudes, a person's attributes. In verse 12, it says, for as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearer of the law who are just in the sight of God, but the doer of the law will be justified. Some people might read these words and think, again, well, this seems to me that Jews have an unfair advantage. They have God's written word. But Paul explains it's not the people who hear the Bible, but those who actually do what it says. That are justified in the sight of God. So Paul explains that while the Gentiles don't have the law, that's the Ten Commandments, the requirements of the law are written in their heart. This is Paul's way of saying, look, what do Jews and Gentiles have in common? They both have access to a moral standard. For the Jew, the moral standard is written in the Ten Commandments. For the Gentile, it's written inside of their heart. Every single person who's ever been born 
is born with a conscience. And they know that what they're doing is either right or wrong. And so every culture, every society knows that it's wrong to lie. It's wrong to cheat. It's wrong to steal. And it never becomes more clear to you than if you've been lied to, if you've been cheated. You never understand how wrong violence is until someone has punched you in the face for no reason. So how does God judge? For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and between themselves, their thoughts either accusing or excusing them. I've told you that your conscience is a moral organ. Your conscience doesn't know what's right. It just simply motivates you to do what's right. Let me give you an example. Does your stomach motivate you to eat? Yes. Remember, your stomach goes, especially right about now, feed me. I know you hate it when I do this because you're getting hungry. You're going, yes, I I am. My stomach is speaking. It's saying, feed me. But your stomach doesn't know what to eat. You have to make a choice. Will your stomach try to digest whatever you put in there? Yeah. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. Pretend like it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk to me just for a minute here that you can speak to me. Your stomach says, feed me. Your brain goes. I know green chili is a Prozac I know that green chili alters your brain endorphins. I know that green chili stimulates the prefrontal cortex and violates the amygdala. I know that in the mouth it tastes so wonderful, but in the intestines, there's judgment. So you try to make the right choice. Your conscience doesn't always know what's right, and so it has to be informed. And because your conscience has to be informed, that's why people in your family, that's why your mother, your brother, your father, your sister, your friend, your neighbor, when you ask them about smoking marijuana or you ask them about living in sin with their girlfriend or boyfriend, when you talk about sexual promiscuity, when you talk about these things and they go, this is right for me, who's informing them? The Bible? No. And so here we go. How does God judge? God judges those who have a lack of God's word and God's law by how well they live their lives in accordance with their own sense of right and wrong. The Gentile, the heathen, will have their conscience entered into evidence. And this becomes Paul's point. Everything that you have ever said and done, your own standard of rightness and wrongness, get entered into the docket. It's placed before the great judge of heaven. And the judge in heaven will evaluate whether you've sinned even according to your own standards. 
Because if you violated your own conscience, then you stand guilty and no one will stand in heaven. No one will accuse God of unfairness. And so in verse 16, it says in the day of judgment, God calls the hidden things to light. The secrets of men will be entered into evidence by Jesus Christ. And we all have secrets. But those secrets will be exposed. And our true character will be revealed. So what does all this mean? What does the perfection of God's judgment mean for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who are content to experience God's judgment apart from the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, for the Christian, it means because God knows everything and that one day we will stand before him and give an account of our lives. God knows what's gone wrong in our hearts and in our lives. And he's made a provision for you. Jesus. Because instead of your mind, you get the mind of Christ. Instead of your deeds, you get the deeds of Christ. Instead of your assets, you get the assets of Christ. Instead of the account marked wrath, you get the account marked grace. And so we should be motivated to pursue profound honesty with ourselves and with others and graciousness and goodness and patience We have to take sin seriously. We have to take holiness seriously. But we also need to pray for honesty. And then deliverance. And grace. And we can be patient. And graceful. With people. What if you pray just this simple prayer? Lord, help me to be as patient with people as you are with me. Would that change your life? Lord, help me to be good towards people the way you've been good towards me. Would that change your life? Help me to be merciful towards people the way you've been merciful towards me. Would that change your life? Help me. Help me. Not accuse anyone of anything that I myself am guilty of. I know what you're thinking. I don't have anything left to say. Paul makes it clear in this passage of Scripture. God has revealed that he will judge the unbeliever. The religious person. The beautiful person. The intelligent person. On the basis of these necessary things. Number one, God will judge you on the basis of truth. In verse 2, God will judge you according to the accumulation of guilt in verse 5. God will judge you according to what you've done and failed to do in verse 6. God will judge you with with perfect impartiality in verse 11. God will do to you according to what you know needs to be done in verse 13. And God's judgment will reach into the secret places of your heart in verse 16. And God will judge according to reality in verse 17 through 29. Or. God will judge you. According to the sacrifice of Jesus. In Africa, there's a tribe which punishes murderers in a unique way. I read this week 
that they punish murder in their tribe by a total loss of identity. The murderer must assume his victim's personality, receive all of his poverty, including marriage to the widow, and take over his position and his dignities. How does God treat our crimes? Jesus takes on the identity of a human being. Jesus assumes all of our poverty and all of our sin that humanity and deprivation that we have to offer. And then he dies the most cruel and indignant death. And then he rises from the dead. And he marries a redeemed bride. Called the church. And then he lavishes the riches of his eternal treasures on this bride. Go figure. You might think, well, that sounds kind of stupid what they do in Africa. For many people in heaven, I wonder if they look down on our circumstances and wonder how in the world could God be so gracious? How could he be so kind? How could he be so generous? How could he be so patient? Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. That in spite of the truth about us and in spite of the accumulation of guilt and in spite of what we've done and failed to do and in spite of our imperfections. In spite of the secret wickedness that's inside of our heart. And in spite of the terror. That we've inflicted. Lord, you choose to deal with us not according to our sin nor reward us according to our iniquity, but to continue to lavish love and grace and mercy and patience. Lord, we pray that as we go through this difficult passage of Scripture that we would be reminded that there is an undertow, there is an undercurrent, there is not just an overt passage, but a covert commitment on the part of Paul, reminding us constantly about God's love and God's grace and God's mercy and God's patience. And so, Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that you've entrusted us with the gospel. Lord, we thank you for whatever privileges you've extended to us so that we can look people in the eye and say with a clear conscience, God loves you and Jesus loves you and he's looking for a reason not to condemn you but to exalt you. Not for a reason to punish you, but to reward you. Not for a reason to condemn you, but to give you eternal life in Christ. And so again, Lord, we pray for patience and wisdom. For generosity and kindness. And for goodness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.